Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Kill Meet and Friends. Uh, one of the great friends to our show has been Ambassador Robert Jordan. We're excited for him because he's got a brand new book that chronicles his diplomatic career. It's The name of the book is Desert Diplomat. Uh, he's a former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He got the job right after 9-11, and he's, his uh, contacts with the Middle East are just fantastic, especially at a time in which uh, we're trying to get an insight. It's an unprecedented time of the Middle East. It seems to the word Middle East and turmoil seem to be synonymous. Uh, never before like now. Uh, Ambassador, welcome back in person. Great to see you, Brian. And if you want to watch KillMeetAndFriends.com, first off, uh, Ambassador, uh, did you hear what Jimmy Carter said? I, I did. Not a surprise. That he does not believe our relations are better anywhere since President Obama took over. Do you do you have a different view from the Middle East perspective? No, that's one of the few times I've agreed with Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I think he got it exactly right. Uh, this president uh, does not leave us better off uh, in certainly the Middle East and any other place in the world I can think of, with the possible exception of Cuba. Right. So that leads us to why. Why is that? Uh, it's a combination of factors, uh, some of which is Obama's fault, some of which is not. Uh, Obama has this policy or this so concept of leading from behind. Well, that's not leadership at all. Uh, the world has always looked to America for the last several generations uh, to be leaders. Uh, it's hard to see our country uh, giving that up, and I think it's been hard for a lot of us to watch uh, that erosion. I think this president also has failed to make uh, any kind of effort at personal relationships with the leaders of the world. Uh, his predecessors, including uh, Clinton and both Bushes, were very good at these personal relationships. Uh, we don't see that anymore. Right. And we also have uh, an era of constrained resources. And so we can't afford to be the world's policeman as much as we could in the past. And I think that's had something to do with it as well. When the, when the Saudis got to the point where they have to bomb the Houthi rebels themselves in Yemen, I was very curious. I mean, wow, they really saw the fact that that was an Iranian ally that they have to use their air force. Do you remember a time when they've ever used, they've used their air force? Uh, no, they, they used uh, ground troops, of course, in the first Gulf War with us, and they were strong allies in fighting uh, Saddam Hussein at that time. But they've really not had the experience of using their air force in the past, and it's not been a particularly robust air force. I think they're having a, uh, a, a very quick learning curve on that. Right, I don't think they're very effective. They've had a hard time with the F-15s. They have a lot of pilot error. Uh, they have a lot of crashes, uh, and uh, it's, it's been a difficult period for them. Uh, when's the last time you were over there? Uh, about a year ago. Are, do you view them as our allies? Uh, I think they're a transactional ally, and by that I mean we have common interests. Uh, we don't have common values, uh, but, for example, fighting terrorism, uh, making sure that the world has a stable price of oil, uh, making sure that there is at least some ally among the Sunni uh, Muslim world. Uh, we have to have allies. Uh, and uh, also, I think, in mm -hmm. trade, they buy billions and billions of dollars of uh, goods and services from us. Right. So you say that uh, the one th area we were talking before that we got on, on microphone, I, I just question, are they really against terror? Because, you know, these, these al-Qaeda guys slash ISIS guys are Sunni and mostly Salafist Sunni, and most of them uh, subscribe to Wahhabism, which is taught in Saudi Arabia. If they were that concerned about terror and their own security, why would they teach this stuff? Well, I think they've got a different uh, perspective on this. Uh, they look at it in terms of uh, the regime, the Saudi regime. ISIS, al-Qaeda are both sworn to bring down the Saudi royal family. Uh, they have uh, in the past attacked, for example, the Minister of Interior, now the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef. A suicide bomber actually tried to take him out in his own uh, headquarters. Uh, we have had a number of instances of ISIS, al-Qaeda, Muslim Brotherhood, and others uh, making statements that they need to bring down the royal family. 
Right. And so this is the dis- the disconnect in a way. What was it like when you got there uh, to Saudi Arabia after 9-11? Well, I was there about three weeks after 9-11. And, of course, at that time, we're trying to decide whether the Saudis are friend or foe. Fifteen of the 19 hijackers had been Saudis. I was very concerned about this. I went to uh, Prince Salman, who's now king, but at the time he was the governor of Riyadh. Uh, he said this could not have possibly been been Saudis involved in these hijackings because Saudis wouldn't do that. It had to have been an Israeli plot. Now, of course, that was preposterous. Uh, several other senior royals said the same thing. I finally got uh, clarity from Prince Saud, the Saudi foreign minister, who's a Princeton graduate and speaks better English than I do, uh, and he really got it. He understood they had a serious extremism problem that they had to do something about. Were they embarrassed? Uh, yes. Uh, and I think that's part of why they some, sometimes were in denial uh, about uh, what had happened. Uh, but Prince Saud made it clear that uh, they had to clean up their act. They had to engage in reforms. Uh, Crown Prince Abdullah at the time uh, seemed committed to that as well. He's followed through uh, before his death uh, in, in some regards, right. but they've got a long way to go. And what was it like over the years serving there? Uh, it was a real challenge. Iraq and Afghanistan? Uh, there were enormous security threats. Um, we did secure their, their help. I think uh, my book actually tells some untold stories about the uh, extent to which they helped us invade Iraq. They gave us border crossings. They let us use the Prince Sultan Air Base. They let us use an air base in Tobuk. Uh, and they were much more cooperative uh, behind the scenes than, that has, than has been disclosed. They wanted to see Saddam gone. They did. They wanted him vaporized. They would have been happy to see him go into exile. Uh, they would have been happy to have him assassinated. What they didn't want was the chaos that uh, ended up uh, occurring uh, because we didn't provide security for the population and we didn't keep the Sunni-oriented apparatuses of government in place, which could have provided security and uh, a little more order. Right, absolutely. And then when when we decide to totally leave, we leave al-Maliki there, who made it a Shia government because he allied with Iran. So it was their worst nightmare and ours. Exactly. All the benefits of the surge were lost. Uh, President Bush's courageous move to endorse the surge which really risked his presidency, uh, made a big difference, and now that's all lost. You said that they viewed Rumsfeld and Cheney as running the American government, not 43. And what was 43's reaction? He said, you tell them I'm running the show, not Cheney and Rumsfeld. He became very angry at that point. What's the difference? Well, the difference, I think, was that he did at least have Colin Powell, who was uh, well-respected by the Saudis, uh, uh, tried to uh, project an understanding of of the dynamics of of the world. But the Saudis were very concerned that uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld were trying to ram democracy down their throats, uh, something that they felt was uh, ill-suited for that part of the world. Uh, True, because they're not into that, because they don't want to have to run for election. They're the royal family. And uh, if if you did have an election right now, I suspect I'll Qaeda or ISIS would win. Ambassador Jordan's with us, former ambassador to Saudi Arabia, wrote a book, Desert Diplomat. This just in, at least 50 Egyptian soldiers killed by Islamic militants in the Sinai today. Yesterday, the prosecutor, who I believe prosecuted Morsi to a life in prison or death, uh, he was killed. What's going on in Egypt? Uh, It's a mess. Uh, There is no one wearing a white hat in Egypt right now. Uh, I think it uh, uh, is uh, really unbelievable that uh, that our president embraced the Muslim Brotherhood the way he did uh, after Mubarak went down. Uh, we but then, they won the election. Well, they won uh, a version of an election, but uh, elections don't necessarily mean that you've got uh, a, a an enlightened government, a government that is not corrupt. 
uh, or a government that is not uh, evil uh, in a way. And I think we saw all of this in the Muslim Brotherhood. And now, frankly, we see a lot of it right. with, the, with the generals and Sisi's administration as well. I want you to see where we're at with these Iranian negotiations. Uh, yesterday, the president spoke cut four. There has been a lot of talk on the other side from the Iranian negotiators about whether, in fact, they can abide by some of the terms that came up in Luzon. If they cannot, that's going to be a problem. Uh, because I've said from the start, uh, I will walk away from the negotiations if, in fact, uh, it's a bad deal. Do you believe this? Well, what's behind you? know diplomatic speaks better than I'll ever know it. I think it's refreshing to hear the president say something like this because we haven't heard this from him up to this point. Uh, the optics have been that he has been so desperate uh, for a deal. Uh, We've already given on every point. Everything exactly, and so I think now uh, he doesn't want it to be uh, uh, necessarily uh, uh, a a rolling over situation because he's been accused of that. He has nothing left for his legacy uh, if he agrees to a bad deal. True, but if he gets a deal and agrees to a bad deal, he might say, "Well, that's fine. They blew it afterwards." But if he gets no deal, then he has no legacy. Well, I think there's not much left, as Jimmy Carter would say, in terms of his foreign policy legacy, for sure. The problem, I think, is that uh, there is really no iron-tight, uh, iron-clad enforcement mechanism, inspection mechanism, or way to snap back the sanctions uh, if and when, as we know, Iran starts cheating. The, the crazy thing, Ambassador, is France is demanding all these things, and so is Germany, and it's America that's give, seemingly giving on all these elements. How does that make sense? How do you... How do you get your head wrapped around that? Uh, it's it's really ironic uh, that the French have been uh, the most uh, hard line of, of any of them up to this point. Uh, I think that's actually a good sign, uh, and maybe the French uh, and the Germans can can keep this together. I think we need to start worrying about the Russians right now, though, because they seem the least interested in continuing sanctions. Uh, they are undermining uh, everything we're doing with the uh, building uh, of, a, the uh, of a nuclear missile power defense, plant. the missile, missile defense, defense. Uh, uh, agreement. Uh, the S-300 missiles. Uh, I think we've got a lot of uh, reasons to worry about the Russians and keeping this uh, this coalition together. I, I want to talk about that. I also, Ambassador, want to get your diplomatic take on establishing relations with Cuba when we get back, as well as where you think we're going with these negotiations and what has already happened to the negative since these talks got serious. We'll discuss all that with Ambassador Robert Jordan next. He's very excited, and he should be, about his new book, Desert Diplomat. Go out and get it. This is Kilmeade and Friends.